Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another episode of In the Press Row. Jonah Siegel here from Northern Ontario. It's an awesomely warm night here. Just watched uh, a good chunk of my, our first baseball game. A real one, exhibition. Uh, and usually we're not saying that in July, but here we are. And uh, super happy to have someone who I've been dying to have on the show for a very long time, but he's so damn busy. Uh, Cabby, what's going on, man? I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. How about yourself? Everybody's good. As, uh, as I think you know, we escaped uh, Wuhan, which is now called Seattle, and uh, drove cross country and we have been hanging out here. In, in I think it's called Florida, actually. It's Florida, yes. Arizona, Texas, like those are, and, the, and those, those cities, those, sorry, those states are like far outperform the rest of the world when it That's comes right. to the coronavirus. Like, you know, the, you, you know, USA is number one. Yes. In the coronavirus. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> winner, winner. Um, yes. So, so really like, I'm really happy to have you on. been wanting to like, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Like I, I knew of you a long time ago. I uh, knew you were working with our mutual friend, uh, Mr. K. And Dave uh, yes. that's right. And uh, I'll tell you how I rediscovered you, my son. And uh, your, your segments really appeal to the younger generation. And uh, the kids are, yeah, look at that. Uh, you, no one else can see that, but you've got a big smile. And it's true. Like you represent and you found a niche with the younger audience, which is the future of the medium. And well, thank you. I'm uh, not, I'm not smarter than them. You. I think that's the, I think that's the big thing. You're smarter than them. I'm not, <laughs> I am not smarter than them. So, you know, like I, I would say, you know, hell's frozen over because, you know, Trump admitted today that masks are a good thing. He came out today and said that the Corona is going to be around for a while. We better get used to it. And I got cabbie on my screen. So, uh, Clearly, hell has wow. frozen over. These are these is a good wow. day. What a what a dystopian reality <laughs> you just outlined there. You know, it would be hell freeze over when he admits a mistake. When he yeah, says, "You know, happen. I I was wrong," or or I didn't tell the truth. That's when you know, like hell is frozen over. So and I'm we're probably we'll probably never get there. So I'm five years your senior, but you probably know the reference. Jumping the shark is coming back to Fonzie from the awesome show Happy Days. Yes. Well, what else came from Happy Days was the Fonz could never say the word I'm r -r 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 wrong. And I think the guy in the White House couldn't say that either. So I think it'll be a really cold day in hell before that happens. <laughs> That's the only uh, way so, that those two could be compared. So I understand I'm, I'm reaching you in Alberta. You're a little bit like me in that, or I'm a little bit like you in that you're never really home all that often. Uh, what are you even up to? You're talking about in Toronto. That's where you're from, right? You're from Toronto? I am, but we're all, I'm always on the road. You're certainly always on the road. What have you been up to since the shutdown? Uh, well, I taught myself. Okay. Sports. Yeah, well, right. But I've been, I've been jonesing. And the other people that I work with at Bleacher Report, we work on the, the betting portfolio. Yeah. These people are degenerates. Like I, when I first got to Las Vegas <laughs> and I joined Bleacher Report, my very first day, it was in uh, it was in August, so there was uh, you know August baseball, and there were guys in the office bidding on what they call nerfies, which are no run first innings, like laying a hundred or two hundred dollars on if there would be no run scored in the first inning. I'm like, this is how detailed, like this is how deep you guys are into betting, betting on first run, like first innings of baseball games. I was like, oh man, I don't even know if I can hang with these cats because I. My betting experience was occasionally throw some money at the Super Bowl, maybe a UFC, you know, if it's like a, one of the an premier, pool. if it's, what's that? An office, an office pool. pool. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, your fantasy football, a March Madness uh, tournament or March Madness pool, but that's pretty much it. But here I'm learning the lingo about, you know, chalk and road dogs and, you know, laying the wood, like all these things I'm, I'm absorbing. <laughs> It's okay. And, it's not a yeah, family would, show. You're allowed to swear here. It's not a problem. Well, laying the wood is not a curse word. I mean, you, <laughs> listen, John, if you're going to sexualize things, then my friend, we got another 45 or however long this is, you, you'll have a, a lot to work with. Um, but, but so, so in the, you know, in the time off, you know, we, had, we we're trying different ways to engage the audience. We had this activation called hoodie happy hour. I jump on Instagram live on the bleach report bettings channel and we give away like hoodies doing simple trivia games 
We had Madden simulations. Um, Adam Lefko was a guy at Bleacher Report, and Taylor Rooks is a, a young lady at Bleacher. They were still doing interviews. Adam was doing his podcast. Taylor Rooks had a, um, a YouTube segment called Take Me There. It was also on Bleacher Report. So there was some content we were creating, but obviously we're missing the, you know, missing games was huge. So, you know, Bleacher's very, very dialed into sports culture. So thankfully, you know, the Curry's or LeBron James's family would, you know, would every couple of weeks, there'd be a new dance that they throw out there on TikTok or Instagram. So that would then become content for us. And we would curate the feeds of NBA players, football players, et cetera. But for the betting side, yeah, we've, um, we've been, we've been dying. And, and now, now that August is upon us and the NBA returns and baseball returns, hockey's not quite a priority at Bleacher, but those two sports will certainly have us, um, keep us busy and I'll, I'll definitely be betting on some hockey as the lone Canadian on the squad in Las Vegas. So have you become degenerate enough that you can explain the difference between a parlay and a teaser? No, no. <laughs> I only know about parlays cause I, I haven't hit one in my life. And I, I always, I try to do like two or three team parlays to try to, you know, a, a three team parlay will basically get you six to one odds but I still lose at those. And I'm not even trying to throw Hail Mary like the 10 or 11 or the 12 team parlays at some of my friends. They might you know, put 10 or $20 on it for a payout of, I don't know, 40 grand, but those never hit. But when they do, it's celebration. So you're having fun. You look good. You have a big smile on your face. You're having fun. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a whole new world, the world of betting. And obviously, being a Canadian working in the, in the United States is also a new world. And the past year has been pretty nuts. So um, I'm, I'm growing personally and professionally. And um, even in the pandemic, there's still um, a few laughs to be had here and there. That's good to hear. So let's go back just a little bit. Like, boy growing up in the GTA and fast forward and i think you interviewed kobe bryant some 20 plus times like connect those dots like how often are you pinching yourself oh um uh you know i'm not much of a smell the roses kind of guy and and maybe that's to my detriment because when i worked at the score and at tsn i had to put out a segment every week so as I feel more relief than pride, I think, in finishing some segments because I was immediate as soon as as it was as it aired, it was immediately in the rear view, and then we were chasing another another athlete or come, trying to come up with another idea, a series of questions to ask athletes. So there were certainly times where I said to myself, "You need to remember this," and you know, you mentioned Kobe, like flying in his helicopter was a moment where I think we we're in there for about twenty minutes, but. And we spent like parts of two days with him to, to shoot that segment. Uh, and that was definitely one of those pinch me moments. But as soon as we got back to Toronto, I immediately turned into producer mode. I'm like, okay, I got to find footage. They played the Miami Heat. He hits the game winner. This happens in real life. I'm like, okay, I know I got to put that in there. And then I got to, okay, we got to have some kind of graphic overlay. What am I going to use? This, this is like 2009. So Google Earth was maybe two or three years old and I'm like oh am I gonna have to build how am I gonna build a map to show our our traveling from this small airport <laughs> to downtown LA like what am I gonna do you know so I started thinking of all those things but as a young kid like a guy in, in when I was in elementary school and junior high and high school my aspirations were to be an actor I wanted to be Will Smith I wanted to be Jim Carrey and in Denzel Washington I didn't have any I didn't have any concept of what it would be like to be on television or to work in sports. I know I love sports, but I had no concept of working in sports. It was so unattainable to me. Um, it seemed like getting on TV to be an actor seemed more attainable, but I didn't know any other, I didn't know any Canadians that were on television or how to even get on there, but, I, but it felt like that was a path that I could, I could take. And I kind of did. Went to Ryerson and studied radio and television but it, and it was there that I, that I, I changed my mind or, you know, I, I realized I didn't have the talent to be a Will Smith or a Jim Carrey or a Denzel Washington. So I was like, Oh, you know what? The score is they need some interns and maybe I should look there as a way to get, gain some experience and as a possible career working in sports. Yeah. I mean, 
it, it's pretty remarkable though because forget the fact like the Canadian landscape is fairly small in terms of sports. There's not that many people. Uh, there's not that many jobs. And then not that many are ultimately that successful to, to get, get to go south of the border. And, and you've done both. Like you've checked both boxes. And you've done it in a very unique way. You are not, you know, you're not Dan Rather. You're not the anchor. You're not the play-by-play. Like you're not. He's a legend. But One day. But, one day. No, no, that's not what that's not that's not at all what I meant. I'm just talking about the role. You don't have the stereotypical Chris Berman. Like you're not, you're not Jay and Dan. You're not the insider. You're not the play-by-play guy. Uh, you're not the sideline girl. Um, you're not. Like you've cut out a very unique niche. And I think if you had to try and explain what you do to somebody else to try and emulate, I don't even know how you start because you've you've built your own thing. Thanks, man. Uh, I don't even, I'm not exactly sure. I, I, you know, I, I sort of traffic, trafficked in the lighthearted side to sports and I really wanted to amplify the personality of the athletes versus championing, championing the game versus featuring the game and getting into analytics. And I had no interest in being a studio, in-studio host, like uh, sitting on a desk and narrating highlights I really wanted to interact with the athletes because I thought that was more interesting. And then you could just meet some of your heroes and just meet some of these amazing, talented players. And then from, you know, I always, my goal was always to try to crack them, always to try to make them laugh. I didn't always succeed, but that was always in the back of my head. And Dave and I wrote questions which would hopefully elicit those responses. And then in the moment I could freestyle or ad lib based on their responses and then try to be, then try to get some kind of response, whether by using physical humor. So it's me, you know, not like Pratt Falls, but I'm a very animated dude. So um, there was just, just exaggerating certain behaviors or movements or disarming them. I put my arm around them or I touch them on their chest. Or sometimes I put my face against their faces. If they were, if they were comfortable with me, I wouldn't just do that to a total stranger because then, a, I would get sideways looks. B, potentially be harmed. C, get thrown out of the arena or, or off the field. Um, so those are the ways that I try to differentiate myself from other reporters that were working in the field who had to cover the game in a traditional way. Um, and hopefully, you know, the audience really dug uh, what I was doing. Well, you know they dug it because they watched it and they watched it in big numbers and you are where you are now. Um, you know, my, I guess my question is not a question. The, the one person who I think reminds me most of what you do is when I was a kid, Ahmad Rashad used to have a, a show on Saturdays. It was like a, it was like a TV magazine of the NBA and it showed a lighter side, a more personal side of the athlete. Uh, do you ever watch that show? NBA inside stuff. Of course it was legendary. Willow Bay was on there. Uh, Summer Sanders, I think was one of his co-hosts. Um, I think it's, I think it's subconsciously informed me when uh, in 2003, I got to, for three years, work on a show called NBA XL. And that was our mag- weekly magazine show. It wasn't so much the lighter side, but it was like back- basketball culture. We dove into sneakers and obviously highlights and performances, fashions. We, we tried to explore the, the lifestyle of the NBA, which Bleacher Report does so expertly now. But back then, so, so as, and that's when I did work in a studio and I worked with a co-host, her name was Namagani Kiwanuka and she was awesome. Um, and I wasn't trying to be a mod cause I, because I was just a lot goofier than a mod and a mod was also a former athlete. I mean, he was, he played for the Minnesota Vikings and he was also Michael Jordan's best friend. So I remember seeing clips of him tossing the football around in Michael Jordan's backyard. I'm like, this is Michael Jordan. Or, I mean, this is like, <laughs> like an icon of just sports, like a global icon. And Ahmad is, I think MJ was either in his wedding party or his best friend. Um, and he had just unbelievable access. So when we were working on NBA Excel from 2002 to 2005, the access was much, much smaller. It was much more limited. Uh, I mean, we couldn't even, I didn't even get meet Kobe Bryant until I went back to the score. Uh, the show NBA Excel was on Sportsnet at the time. Um, so, 
I, I, you know, I, I think it informed me and I remember, you know, two, you know, he would do rewind and he would he have like a highlight from every, uh, the past seven days, one, he'd like pick one game per day and, and, you know, uh, what was another, no, but it, like, that's the like, only, that's the only segment I can remember from that. No, but he used to show up, but he used to show up at their house in a limousine and they'd get into the limo and they'd go for a ride and you'd see a little bit of the, of the slice of personal life that we never saw before. Nobody else really <laughs> did that in any other sport. You've brought that back. Thanks, thanks. And he had, you know, one of his iconic clips was Shaquille O'Neal in some random gym dunking and then breaking the hoop and then crashing the net and it all, all the glass came, you know, crashing down on him. That was like, that was from inside stuff. So I was, I was professionally jealous, but uh, I hoped to get that kind of access and develop those kinds of relationships with the players. So, so you've interviewed not just players, you've, you've gone to music stars, you've gone to Hollywood stars or actors or actresses, athletes in all the leagues, all, this, all the different ones. Who's, who's been the, the toughest nut to crack or the uncrackable? Uh, that's a great question. Um, give me a few seconds here. The toughest to crack. Hmm. Or, or not, or who didn't crack? You know, it took me a little while to get Rajon Rondo to smile. I interviewed him during the 2008 NBA Finals because he's a pretty stoic guy. But I did eventually, I think like I was working on him for like six minutes and by the end he smiled. It wasn't very, a memorable interview, but I remember him being particularly tough. Um, oh, well, recently, like Michael Thomas of the New Orleans Saints, I interviewed him and it sucked. He was just like, you know, sometimes I always have to remember that these guys are humans and they don't know me and they don't owe me anything. They just agreed to a five minute interview and they just, their expectations are this person's going to be the same as they all are because there are very few people like me out there in the media. And that day, I think we were in San Diego. There was a joint camp between the Saints and the Chargers, so I interviewed Michael Thomas of the Saints and Joey Bosa of the Chargers. And Joey Bosa was super laid back. He reminds you of a surfer. And then Michael Thomas, like every answer was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's like, he was like trying to accelerate it so that we could just get out of it. And I was like, man, this is, this is a tough one. So I put a lot of graphics and, and highlights in there because there wasn't much substance to the one-on-one -on -one conversation. So I had to dress it up. And if you watch any of my inter interviews and there's, there are a lot of highlights or random quotes or whatever. Just know that <laughs> the substance <laughs> of the interview is, is minimal. So I had to, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. But how hard is it to get those guys now? Like when you're trying to do these, you've built a name for yourself. I don't mean this in one way or the other, like not negatively at all, but they know your shtick and that's good. That's a good thing, right? Like it's no, this isn't, this isn't uh, Sasha Baron Cohen with one of the greatest TV shows ever made, right? Like yes, they hear you're coming, they hear you're coming. They know that this, again, and I don't mean it disrespectfully, they know it's not hard hitting journalism. This is gonna be a fun personal interview. Well, fun is definitely subjective, but they know they can let their guard down because I'm not there asking about the X's and O's. I'm not there with an agenda. I'm not there to d discuss anything controversial. Whether they enjoy it or not is a different, is a different it's question. Them because it's still work. Yeah. And also I'm not for everybody. It's like, you know, so, um, you know, there's, there are some, I've, I've been very fortunate in hockey where I think a lot of the players know, like are aware of my style and stuff. And, but they're, they're, you know, baseball is, that's a hard one. To, oh, Alex Rodriguez was a guy who's impossible. Even Jeter. I don't know if you, I think I made Jeter laugh like once and I interviewed him probably five or six times. He was, you know, as, as electric as he was as a player and he's, you know, he's got an entire vault of career highlights. He was like, he really didn't say much in his interviews. And A-Rod, I, I remember, like I, I got him one time and I'd asked him over the course of like seven years and every time he said no. And then the one time he said, okay, he thought it was a radio interview. So I'm waiting on the, you know, uh, right by the dugout, the visitor dugout. This is in Toronto, Yankees at, at Blue Jays, he comes off the field. And then uh, when I initially pitched it to him in the clubhouse, I was like, hey man, do you have time for a couple of questions? And so in his mind, he's like, two. 
And he's like, yeah. But in my mind, I'm like five. So he comes off the field and he's like, all right, uh, let's go. I was like, okay, how you doing, man? He's like, I'm good. One more question. And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> it was just small talk. That wasn't part of the actual interview. So I asked him one more and I snuck in like a third, I guess, if technically how are you as a question. And then he was gone. Like, answered it peace like didn't even say bye it was like it was so routine for him and that entire interview lasted 57 seconds i remember going back to the score with my tail between my legs i'm like this sucked and i used every you know every second of it other than the how are you um <laughs> but uh yeah he was he was a tough one he was um but so but okay so baseball I still have trouble getting access to athletes baseball players are the hardest to get one-on-one -on -one time with because they don't have set times for the media like hockey, football, and basketball players do. Hockey players and basketball players, you can talk to twice, sometimes three times on a game day. Football players, generally you go to that city on a Wednesday, sometimes Thursday, depending on whether, whether they play a Sunday afternoon game or a Sunday night game or a Monday night game. But generally, like middle of the week is their media availability. And baseball players play 162 games. They play every day. They don't practice. So you can't get them at practice like you can for hockey players and basketball players. You go to the morning skater, the morning shoot around, you get a few minutes after that. But so they're hard. So I got like in 2018, I got time with Mookie Betts and he eventually became the AL MVP. And it was awesome. But again, it was like a hard five minutes. The PR guy's like, all right, you got five minutes. And then Mookie's like, yeah, I think I got a couple of minutes. And I was like, oh my gosh. It, it actually, it strikes lightning fear in my heart when they're like, when you, when you have an expectation for a certain amount of time and then that expectation is, is, is taken away and reduced. So it, it ended up being like six minutes. I think I stressed, I stretched it and I was like almost manic and frantic in the Q and A because I, I was against the clock and that's always a race against the clock. Cause these guys have so many other things to do. They have families, they have other media obligations and some of them are just trying to get through it. Sometimes some guys are like, all right, I'm going to, I'll enjoy it. I'll take my time with it. Like Aaron Rodgers, even Kyle Lowry who busts my balls every single time. He'll be like, all right, he'll give me eight or 10 minutes. Um, who else are some of the guys that are, I'll try to pick guys, Ryan Getzlaff or Mike Richards, um, Tyler Sagan. Those guys will, Sube, PK, will give me like 15, 20 minutes um, basketball, mostly it. like because, the, the because, Toronto because, dudes. But because they get it. They know it's good shtick and they know it's, it's good for their persona and it humanizes them. I, I, I think so. I think so. And it's just different from what the, Evander Kane's another guy, just different from what they're, what they're used to. And they know that they can relax and they know that they, they also know that I'm the butt of the joke, which is the way that I've designed it. I took a cue from Conan O'Brien, who was, who was the guy that I watched when I was growing up. And he was really sharp and he was very self-deprecating. And I, I just, I lean into self-deprecation. I think it's just a funny, a better experience for the audience. And also I'm not sharp enough to like, just kill somebody with jabs. I don't have that. I don't have that level of wit. And also, like, if you're if you're asking for someone for asking for somebody's time, you shouldn't be insulting them. That shouldn't <laughs> be the exchange. But uh, so that's why I, I err on the side of just make fun of me. It's easy. Okay, so take a take a deep breath. Think about the champ, Mike Tyson, for a second, and I'm going to read an ad or two. Okay, so you got so sleep envy, as you know, like you're sleeping at home right now. So but when you're on the road, sleep envy is more than a mattress. Customize your mattress by taking the one minute quiz. Ships in a box right to your door. Try it for 100 nights in the comfort of your home. Shipping is always free. If you're not satisfied, they pick it up and they refund you. Use Press Row at checkout to get, wow, 25% off. 10% of their sales are going to feed the hungry during the corona. Again, that's go to sleepenvy.com and enter the code PRESSROW at checkout for 25% off. Close this window and we are back. So you, uh, you've interviewed Mike Tyson a couple of times. Yes. What was he like when the camera wasn't rolling? They were both two different experiences. The first time was at his home. The second time was, at, was on a media tour in Toronto when he was doing a one-man show. Both times he was with his wife. And 
the second time he was much more low key and didn't remember that I'd been to his home. I mean, Mike Tyson's literally done probably in the six figure numbers of interviews over the course of his 20 year career. Yeah. I mean, the guy were like guy, I think he's 54 and he's been in the spotlight since he was like 16 years old. So basically 40 years. Uh, off camera. So when we we're at, when I was at his house, I was so nervous. Dave, myself, and my producer or my cameraman Randy, we we're in his backyard by his pool, just waiting. We had to wait about twenty five minutes, and then we that was one of those pinch me moments, Jonah. Like we're actually in Mike Tyson's home. <laughs> we're in Henderson, Las Vegas, about fifteen minutes outside. Yeah, of yeah I know where it is. And um, uh, and you know <laughs> we're just waiting and um. You know, he had a sandwich before we started. So there wasn't much communication beforehand. And actually the second time I interviewed him, the same thing. He was kind of moving from room to room as almost like a media junket. And then different outlets were interviewing him. Global, CTV, eTalk, us, Sportsnet, all the, all the outlets. But the, so the first time was more enjoyable because it was one-on-one. I was in his home. He was relaxed. And I'm, I revere Mike Tyson because he was at one time the most famous human on the planet. He was, he's right there with lock and step with Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson. Uh, and like, when you look in his eyes, dude, and now he's like, he's returned to his athletic shape. He just has that killer look. <laughs> in, and it is, it will, it will put the fear of God in you. And and he was, he was playful by the end of the interview at his home. But there, there was a moment where I asked him about greatness, if he chases greatness again, because he's achieved greatness once in his life. And he had a great perspective. He was really introspective. And then he was like playful as well. So it was like, it was cool to see sort of a mosaic of, of sides of, of Mike Tyson. But when he was thinking and when he was looking like he had this, I think he said, um, not all men, not all men, that do great things are great men and that not all bad men, oh, what was, I'm butchering the quote. Anyway, it was pretty profound. But when he, when I was looking at him in the eyes, he was, he was starting to get like serious because he was, he was really considering his answer. But that's when the fear came in, man. I was like, <laughs> woo. So at the end of the bit, uh, and thank you very much for referencing it. It's one of my favorite bits. I, you know, I went to like a Ralph's or a CDS and I got a, a new jar of Vaseline. I said, Mike, I want to know what it feels like to be a boxer. Obviously, I don't want you to hit me. I didn't say that, but yeah. can you put some Vaseline on my face? And why do the cornermen put Vaseline on the faces of the fighters? And he said, it's so that the, you know, the gloves slide off and, and so, um, to, to reduce the amount of contact or the impact of the punch. So he puts, you know, it took me about five minutes to convince him. Eventually he gets a big scoop, puts it on my eyebrows, my eyes, behind my ears, on my head. And then he's sliding, he's pantomiming, sliding the punches off of my face, but he's actually making contact with my head. And I was like, yo, these are coming in kind of, kind of quick. Uh, and it was awesome. But it, it took me a while to coax him, but then it was like super rewarding for me. And I think, um, I think when the audience sees Mike Tyson at his most playful, juxtaposed to what he was in the ring it's it's uh it's very it's very fun did you do jordan yeah i interviewed michael twice but i it wasn't these weren't sanctioned interviews i completely ambushed him on two golf courses about four years apart once in 2009 in ontario at uh, i think it was Glen abbey you know oakville whatever the course is in oakville uh mike weir had it like a celebrity a golf tournament and then another time at michael jordan's own golf tournament it was the first year it was in las vegas it was at the shadow creek course and i just took my like i just took my shot you know both times we were told explicitly michael jordan is not doing interviews but dave and i just sort of waited it out we part we camped out at one hole uh, the one in uh 2009 was like the first hole and he had started i don't know maybe at the 10th and he was working his way around the course and then the time at Shadow Creek, we also just like, all right, we're going to start the first hole again. And then we interviewed play, um, other athletes as they were coming through. In that segment, there was Wayne Gretzky, um, Alan Thicke, God rest his soul, Ken Griffey Jr., Marcus Allen. I think I got Jason Taylor and John Smoltz on that day as well, and then Michael Jordan. And I, it, it was both interactions were about a minute 
maybe a minute and a half. I had like two questions for him. I brought a prop because I like to include props in my interviews. I shit my pants and, um, and then I hugged him uncomfortably for seven to 10 <laughs> long one one thousands. And I think that's how Michael remembered Because who's going to hug, unless you're a child, Who's gonna, first of all, who's going to get close enough to Michael Jordan to hug him unless you're one of his colleagues or his peers and you can give him a dap? But then someone in the media, like, no, your handshake at best. No one gets to hug Michael Jordan. And I did. And uh, it, was, it was pretty rewarding, but also, I'm sure, very weird for him. So did you watch the ESPN documentary? What, The Last Dance? Mm-hmm. Come on, dude. That was like the purest narcotic I've ever experienced. Tell me it was more. Red Bull, cocaine, heroin, and jumping out of an airplane with no parachute. I needed that on my Sunday nights. And you know, and there were, there, I had a couple of people like, yo, do you want the first eight episodes? I said, no, I actually need these, these two hours on my Sunday nights because this is appointment television. And also, I don't want, I'm aware of the story and I, I had no idea how, how much we were going to learn about like Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman. And Dennis Rodman's 30 for 30 was excellent. The but greatest there was, one, the greatest one ever. You think it was more than, well, wait, the two Escobars, the two Escobars were legit. And also OJ's Made in America is technically a 30 that's, for 30. That's not a, no, I'm talking about just 30. The, the, the Dennis Rodman 30 for 30 is one of the most fascinating documentaries yes. I've ever watched. Yes. Like, can you imagine being, what was he, 25 or 26 right. in his truck outside of the palace? No, it was before the palace at Auburn Hills. Like the, the moment his he wanted kicked to- kicked him out of his house. Oh yeah, when he was in high school, yeah. But then later when he achieved success with the Pistons, I think they'd won, they had gone back to back in yeah. 89 and 90. And it was before, uh, yes. And I think either Chuck Daly was, I think it was after Chuck Daly left the team and then he was- like alone and I can't imagine being in that mental space where you're like I want to just this is it uh but yeah it, that was that was fascinating so Andrew, yes the last dance of course and it was it was the greatest commercial for the Jordan brand for Michael Jordan himself Nike uh I mean it just it just amplified the mythology of Michael Jordan but like there were there were a couple of problems with it however I was a lot I was I was all in for the ride and I loved every second of it. So what did you like the best? What was your crack? What, of, of the series? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you mine. Yeah. Episode seven was probably the best one. But anyway, g- give me yours. It was, the, it was the locker room footage that they had that nobody's ever seen before. Yeah. He's sitting in the locker room and he's gambling with those, with the locker with room. The security attendants. guards. Yeah. Like smoking, like smoking cigars on planes, smoking cigars in, in locker rooms, like that footage. I could have just watched that for days. It was awesome. And shout out to uh, you know, RIP was who was like the, the guy with the Jerry curl perm. He's yeah. no longer with us, but he was, he was an exceptional character. Um, I really loved, and this is a great device by the director, Jason Hare giving Michael Jordan an iPad to watch Brilliant. other people speak about moments. Yeah. And then we got, we got two or three great memes out of that and having MJ react in real time to what Isaiah Thomas said or Gary Payton. And he's like, I had no problems with Gary. Like right. those moments for us, you know, and he's still so competitive to his core that he would just like, <laughs> he, even though, those two games that Gary Payton did guard him, games uh, five and six of the of the '96 NBA Finals, Jordan shot very poorly. So Gary was effective, but you know they did win four two. They were up three one or whatever, or up three zero before um, uh, George Carl made that adjustment in, uh, defensively. But it was th- those moments were amazing. The music, like taking us back to that era giving us like, don't sweat the, I think, don't sweat the technique. Michael, uh, LL Cool J's on bad. There was uh, uh, Camp Lowe's, this is it with the trumpets. Bip, 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 I'm, I'm not doing a very good job. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, th- it was, it was a narcotic. And I, you know, the hardest thing I've ever tried was absinthe, but that was like, that was like <laughs> a row of shots of absinthe. Give me like, like six or eight every Sunday night. So let's, uh, let's talk about something more challenging. 
Sure. Your friend Kobe Bryant. Yeah. It's, I miss, uh, it, I it's of course, it's, uh, we're sitting here. We've been in this pandemic now for, what is it, six months? I think we got shut down in February. February, March, April. Well, May, yeah. Mar- March 11th was when Rudy Gobert tested positive. And to me, that is the demarcation. That is like the beginning. We were of- before that in Seattle. Like we were already shut down in oh, Seattle. Right. Yes, that's right. So whatever that, like we've been shut down a long time. And I don't want to connect the two, but the Kobe incident was just before that. Yeah, January 26th. Yeah. I believe it was January 26th. And, you know, I can tell you that I was sitting at my couch at home, a rare moment that I wasn't overseas. And I look at my phone and my phone's exploding. And I look down and it says, Kobe Bryant allegedly died in a helicopter crash. And of course, like then I was still watching the news. I won't watch it anymore. But I flipped on the news and there was nothing there. And then all of a sudden it cut in. How'd you hear? A friend called me from Toronto, uh, uh, a former uh, a former colleague who's an editor at Sportsnet. He called, and then uh, and then he said, "Check your phone or check Twitter." And then I saw it, so I went to TMZ, and TMZ had the fo- story first. And I was like, yep. "This is real," because TMZ once they once TMZ broke the Michael Jackson death in yep. two thousand nine, and then broke the Tiger legitimate. Woods, yeah. So, uh, and I just kept refreshing because I wanted more information. And I, I then I learned later on there was, you know, the, the team had learned about it before TMZ did. And, you know, the, the team was on the f- flight from Philadelphia back to Los Angeles. Uh, there were some of those things. And um, yeah, that's, the, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. I was just, I was by myself in my kitchen. And then I think I called my lady and I, I spoke to Dave and I think maybe even I told, I told Dave, my, my producer, Dave Cricks, who was with me every time that I saw Kobe pretty much. Uh, yeah. And, and then the, I was just in shock, like everybody else for like the next 72, 96 hours. It was just unreal. It's hard to imagine that, that gone at such a young age. Uh, again, like he's not forgotten. There's no way you can say that, but with what's happened since. You got very emotional on a CTV interview uh, talking about him, how you remembered him, which was, a, to me, that's a sign of class and a sign of strength, not weakness. Uh, showing raw emotion in real time is a good thing. So if you've reflected on it, because you've had lots of time, what are your thoughts on him now? Because some time has passed. They have not changed. <laughs> they have not changed. He's an icon, a legend. No, but what, what did was... he mean to you? Well, he, ele- he elevated me more than anybody else. And I'll always be grateful for that. He, you know, set aside five to 10 minutes every time I was in town. You know, we did uh, have that. We had like one meal together and that was the time I pitched him the helicopter idea. Um, he was very playful. He's like the biggest star that let his guard down. Um, and I was able to connect with them. And I think the audience they saw a different side to Kobe that previously had not been seen. Uh, and it was magic sometimes when he like, uh, he would call me cabster or just when he would have a nice zinger, I just set myself up. I just lob him. He just, he would just crush, you know, one liners and stuff. Um, so that's what I remember. And, and I, you know, his, his legacy in the whole Mamba mentality mantra is just so universal just like do work, just like push yourself and just focus on the grind. And that journey will be rewarding, you know, when you have a goal in mind Uh, and everybody can understand that you don't have to be an elite basketball player. And and I just love how after he was, after he left the game of basketball, then he moved the spotlight to his daughter, Gigi. And she was 13 or 14 years old. And, you know, he was taking a back seat and then, elevating her and it was amazing to see how huge of an advocate he was for women's sports and soccer he had a great relationship with Sidney LaRue and then in 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 basketball it's it's kind of amazing how NBA players are the only the only ones I suppose because there's there are no female leagues in the in the three or four the three other major sports actually soccer there are obviously there is there are female leagues but 
NBA stars, LeBron, Chris Paul, Carmelo, Kobe, would go to WNBA games and sit courtside as a form of solidarity. And they had friends who were uh, female basketball players, and they were so happy to support them. We don't see that in hockey. We don't see that in basketball or baseball. Obviously, we don't see it in football. Uh, but in, in soccer, I suppose because the season is the full year, soccer players aren't able to travel to offer support or sit in the stadiums of, of their female counterparts. So it was pretty unique to basketball. And, um, and that's one, one, like Kobe's light, his ability to shine light to other people, that's what we're going to miss. It's funny because what, what you're good at is you shine a light on a part of the athlete or entertainer that we, all, we don't always get to see. You humanize them. Thanks, man. I'm, with, with Kobe especially, and I'm sure certain other ones as well, you had the ability to see actually farther behind the wizard's curtain, if you will. Uh, to some, to some respect. I mean, I wasn't training with him. No, I wasn't like I wasn't up there at five a.m. You know, get, doing wind sprints and stuff like that. I mean, he let me in a little bit. He let the biggest thing was he let his guard down and he allowed himself to be to show more of the playful side because we'd only experienced the tenacious all-world, all-NBA MVP competitor where he's snarling, he's chewing on his jersey, he's hitting clutch shots, he's dunking over Yao Ming and Dwight Howard, he's winning championships, he's willing himself to iconic performances. My guy snaps his Achilles <laughs> and, and gets up, still makes his two free throws, and then walks off the court. Like, that is a boss move. And Kobe, you know, he... He did. He was almost invincible at times, but uh, so to get behind that guard, that armor was was pretty special. So you covered a lot of Toronto athletes. In your opinion, where does Kyle Lowry fit in the mod? What's called you know the modern era of Toronto team sport players. As far as performance goes, or perf as far as my interviews with him go? Well, let's take, we'll go performance, and then we can talk about your interviews. Performance, uh, Kyle is top two or three. I mean, Kawhi was the MVP, and I know he was only here for a year, but he very much carried that team on, two on a bad knee, two bad quads, and I think he had something wrong with his shoulder. Um, but Kyle, if you look at the, the, the scope of his career, I think the, Roberto Alomar might be the only person I'd put ahead of Kyle Lowry as far as Toronto sports. Because Roberto was just all world. And even though Paul Molitor won, uh, he was a 93 MVP. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Pat Borders was the World Series MVP in 92. I can't remember who the league MVP was in 92. Roberto Alomar was like on, I don't know, 15 all-star teams, somewhere between 12 and 15 all-star teams, batted like 330 every year, was clutched that home run against Dennis Eckersley in the ALCS in 1992. Dennis Eckersley was the most devastating closer <laughs> at that time. You know, and was, was uh, one of the linchpins to back-to-back to -back World Series championships. So I'd say Roberto, Kawhi, and then Kyle, I mean, so whoever the Leafs were in the 60s that won uh, Stanley Cups, that predates me. So in me my lifetime, you as yeah, well. I said, okay. I said modern era. Oh, modern era. Okay. Uh, and then after that, man. Um, it's tough. Yeah, Josie and Javenko were pretty special. I mean, they were in, they were in two finals and they did win uh, ML and, and, and MLS Cup. I don't know about the hockey dudes, man. I know Matt Sundin is in the Hall of Fame and he scored 500 goals. But um, Demar, Demar, yeah, he he'll, he'll get his number retired. I mean, and he, and deservedly so. Should they? Just put, we just should they put Vince Carter up? Not before Kyle and Demar. But um, they should. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Even though, yeah, even though the way he left still hurt, like hurts my heart 
and he just didn't want to be here. The Vince Carter effect was a real thing. And then what he did for basketball in Canada, just inspiring the gen uh, uh, multiple generations of players. I mean, Jamal Murray is 22 or 23, and he has a, a puncher's chance with his Denver Nuggets to make it out of the West. Puncher's chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's you know Tristan Thompson and Andrew Wiggins and uh, 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 Corey. Um, oh, my gosh. How am I forgetting his name? Uh, Corey Joseph, um, Kelly Olynyk, you know. I wonder even if there's even an honor that, or a way that the Toronto Raptors can honor Steve Nash as a two-time MVP. He is going. He is already in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, his his contributions to basketball in Canada are enormous. Yeah, and I, and I actually don't. I don't think someone has contributed more to the game than Steve Nash. I mean, other than maybe the builders, or other than maybe James A. Naismith, who invented the game, <laughs> shooting balls into peach baskets uh, in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. But um, yeah, Vince Vince will get his number retired. I'm pretty sure. But Kyle has to be first. Demar second. I I would even retire Kawhi's number two, and then Vince. So the obvious question is, how do you like their chances? Should they actually get to play again? I love season? their chances. I love yeah. their chances. As the two seed, they don't have to play, in theory, Milwaukee to the conference finals. So they're going to get Boston, which the three seed, that's going to be a tough one. If, if the Sixers remain at the six seed and play Boston in the first round, like that could be an upset. And then we get the Sixers in round two. No easy task. You know, as Ben Simmons moves to the four, and doesn't play the point, you know, uh, Brett Brown is, 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 and then Al Horford comes off the bench. He's rejigging his lineup, which will present problems for Toronto. But we got skinny Marcus We got skinny Kyle Lowry. Great chemistry with the team. Nick Nurse has managed to coach, I don't know, it feels like 80 different lineup configurations over the course of the season when it, every starter was out for a considerable amount of time and just guys, he plugged guys in and they performed. Number two defense in the NBA. I think they're 15th in scoring in offense, which is a little bit worrisome. But this situation is <laughs> this is most unique ever. There's no home court advantage. There are no fans. There's no one to feed off of other than your teammates. And, um, and then there's this virus, which right now, Seems like it's out of outside of the bubble, but anything can happen. And, you know, there could be some clandestine operations to get visitors inside the bubble of uh, opposite genders because some dudes need companions uh, <laughs> late at night and when you're 23 years old and you're a millionaire and you just need someone to lay next to. You might find if there's a will, there's a way. And perhaps that is the way that the virus then enters the magic kingdom. But if we're just talking about that, so if that, that aside, <laughs> um, the, again, the, the chip is on their shoulder. No one gives the Raptors respect. They're a 16 to one betting odd, betting favorite to win the NBA championship. You know, getting out of the East. And, and listen, if the Raptors. Barkley picked him to win the East. Who did? Charles oh, Barkley. Right. Shout out to Charles. He's a, huge, he's a huge fan of Canada. Listen, if the Raptors make it out of the East. Giannis is coming to Toronto, bro. You know, I know Golden State is, is, is one of the front runners and I th- maybe even one of the LA teams, but, you know, he will come and, and nestle himself into the bosom of, of Toronto and it will be an absolute game changer. So that's why my heart is rooting for the Raptors and, and I think I can convince my brain that that is the wise pick as well. That's the wise long shot. So let, let's take a turn for the last segment here um, okay it's late at night and well it's late at night here it's not and I'm taking a lot of your time but sports has and journalism in sports has taken a little bit of a, a blight over the last several months um things are not going to be normal when these games come back not just because the, the the stadium is empty but allegations of mistreatment from the media in the media in sports around sports women, peoples of color, minorities, homophobic slurs. Uh, 
we are certainly not in Kansas anymore, if you will. Um, you, you grew up, you know, you grew up a per person of color and you're, and you're in the sports business and you're in journalism. You're watching all of this. How are you feeling? I feel optimistic. Okay. The winds of change, I think, are, will blow, will propel us in the right, to be on the right side of history. You know, there, there are a lot of, uh, I've awoken, I people who just ignored. Repeat that again. A lot of, a lot of what has awoken, we might I have had people, an internet perp there for a second. No problem. <laughs> I think there are millions of people who are now seeing the light, who have awoken, and people who were before not being racist now understand that that's not enough. It's people like me are asking to be anti-racist, and we have a lot of allies. And obviously, with the horrific murders of George Floyd and uh, Ahmaud Arbery and and Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain, you know, the people are seeing these things recorded and that's, that's, a, that's a huge seminal moment. Before, you know, as, as people were crying out and their voices were, were, weren't heard, now some of these injustices, they can, other people can see them. And then as these companies big media companies, Fortune 500 companies are doing an audit of their organizations and say, hey, are we doing enough? The answer is no, but now they can start the process of making things truly equal. Uh, look, we've done that at Bleacher Report. Um, our CEO stepped down, Howard Mittman, when the culture inside of the walls of Bleacher Report just wasn't where it needed to be. And you know, the stories out there, a lot of, there were a significant amount of employees that were felt like some opportunities weren't given to them or they had earned opportunities and they weren't then, you know, elevated in their jobs. You know, this is a time where the pandemic, both the coronavirus pandemic and then the Racism pandemic, that time isn't over. Because as you know, Jonah, people get fatigue about things like there's obviously there's coronavirus fatigue. There, you know, the news cycle, the way it is, they churn churn through stories every 15 seconds. But this one, I really hope and I and I, I believe that it could be extended. Then there's a pause, and a lot of people have done some, have tried to educate themselves, both by listening and learning watching some documentaries, reading books like The White Fragility, and um, a lot of the stakeholders and leadership, uh, leadership groups in big companies that will start to change. And, you know, whereas before the, the palette was one shade, I'm optimistic that there will start to be a mosaic because then, it will, then I'll be confident that more voices will be heard and more perspectives um, Will be will be seen and blind spots can then have some clarity because there are more voices in the room that reflect our society. I'm sorry that was such a long-winded answer, but I'm optimistic, man. It's important, so that's why I asked it. I wanted your opinion. I wanted your answer. How challenging was it? How pervasive was it as you moved up through the ranks in your career? To uh, you personally, not overtly. I mean, listen, we, we we're Canadians, so it's. You know, we have that, uh, those, that, those British sensibilities where things, there, there isn't the, we're not boastful, we're not particularly animated people, we're pretty reserved. And, you know, there were moments where I could, where I, I felt like the other, certainly covering hockey, which is an old boys club, I felt like that a lot, but I didn't let it hamper my, my performance or my job. Because I knew, you know, there was, you get two minutes with a guy and that's it. So you got to get in and out. And I really believe that the audience didn't care about the process. They just want to see the product. And I've said this before, nobody cares that an iPhone has components from 65, like the, nobody cares about the supply chain to create an iPhone and that they take, it takes parts from like 65 different 
countries or companies. They just want the new iPhone. So you know, I, I, I knew that a long time ago and I took a cue from Brian Burke who said, don't show me, don't tell me about the labor pains, just show me the baby. So even in moments where I was, people were, you know, people would turn around to watch me interview somebody in a, a hockey dressing room or, you know, I was told like, you have to hold on or I was being held up so that other people can get access to players. It bugged me in the moment, but I was like, man, nobody's going to care about the stuff they're doing. They're going to care about what I'm doing. So that's, I always kept that in mind. So it wasn't overt, overt, but there were a few moments. Well, this has been awesome. I, I will tell you that in doing my research, one of my favorite interviews that you did, surprisingly, was actually with Bob McKenzie. It was pretty funny. Oh, thanks, um, man. Wow. No one's ever mentioned that before. Thank you. It's, Thank a, it's you. a great one because I'm a big Bob fan and you, again, like it's not that he's not human, but you humanize him. So I'm going to ask you a couple of the questions that you asked him. Kind okay. of rapid fire, just, just to wind down here on, on, a, lighter, on a lighter note. Sure, so sure. If I, pick, if I turned on your Spotify right now, what would the most frequent songs that you've been listening to recently would be? Um, the, uh, Oh my gosh, I'm I'm blanking. Heady one featuring Drake. Uh, okay. Um, oh my gosh, uh, I gotta look it up now. That's fine. Heady one featuring Drake, um, which just dropped. I, I don't know when you're gonna post this, but it dropped within the last 24 hours. Yeah. Um, it's called Only You. Sorry, Only You Freestyle. Then uh, another one called Pop Star by Drake. It's basically a lot of Drake. There's Drake. Then there's, I've been listening to this Joey Badass EP and I've been listening to some John Legend. So those three artists will probably be the, the most listened to in the last 72, 96 hours. So as you asked Bob, if you had 20 lady friends coming up to the cottage. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, so what would be on the playlist? Okay, so then, then I'm, I'm, I'm switching gears. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna have her on the playlist. I'm definitely going to have Drake. Um, I might even mix in some Bieber. Um, what else? What else is like, I you know the playlist has to have a certain kind of a vibe. It's got to be either chill or it's got to be <laughs> poppy because you know, the pre-drink is sometimes the pre-drink is the most fun part of the night. Cause that's when you're first getting the buzz. People are like, you know, dancing a little bit, reciting lyrics to songs, it's like the anticipation for the night, the buildup for the night. So that, that playlist would have to be legit. Um, what else would I have on there? Um, off the top of my head. Uh, oh my gosh. What would I put on there? You see I might, you, you know, people what? when you ask these questions, now you get What's to that? feel it. See what you do. Yeah, you do. Yes, yes. Oh, I would put some Cardi B and Nicki Minaj. Both are tremendous artists, very singable songs. And I would pick, you know, the ones that I know that the girls, because like, Jonah, it's all about like, you know, Puff Daddy said a long time ago to the Notorious B.I.G. He's like, just give me some songs for the radio. Just make, just give me some songs that the women can sing in the, in the clubs. And, you know, Puff's not wrong. Puff Daddy is not wrong. And and what beverages would they be drinking at the Cabbie Cottage Party? Oh, okay. Well, there's going to be a, a heavy dose of either Grey Goose or Belvedere, Moscow Mules. They go down, and there's going to be a lot of gin and tonics. I feel like a lot of young ladies, gin and tonic is their jam, but Moscow Mules are so smooth. It's the perfect summer drink, and it just you just you never know when it hits you, but then it hits you like, ooh, I'm feeling nice. See, Jonah, okay, you got so, me. Like, I might go have one tonight. I might go have one right now. As I'm, as I'm talking about, I'm salivating a little bit, just thinking about this, uh, this fantasy of being at Bob McKenzie's cottage with 20 <laughs> uh, friends, and the night, the night is young. And if you're standing in the Raptors court and you have to hit, you have 10, sh 10 free throws to make. How many are you hitting? Ooh, free throws. I'm f five for ten. I'm going. I'm, I'm, I'm going to shoot. One more than Bob. Bob said four. You're saying five. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm going to shoot a better clip than Andre Drummond, DeAndre Jordan, and Shaquille O'Neal, and good Bob for McKenzie, you. for that matter. That, that's awesome. Well, we really appreciate you doing this, Cabby. It's good to see your smile. Hopefully, uh, we'll be seeing a lot more of you as, you as you finally, I've given you homework. You now have to find the difference between a parlay and a teaser. That's Thank your homework you. yes. tomorrow. 
Thank you, John. When I was a boy, my grandfather used to bet football games, and he was always telling me that a teaser was the way to go as opposed to a parlay, and I had no clue what he was talking about. Thank you for the homework. I appreciate it. And thank you for this conversation, man. It was a lot of fun. Well, stay safe, and uh, hopefully we'll be talking to you when the games are being played. Yes, sir. Will do. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.